No, I think, you know, day to day, moment to moment, how are you going to focus your attention? Because when you really dissect what it is like to be human and these notions of free will, you, you know, you didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose your genetics, you didn't choose the environment or the era in which you were born, you didn't choose the religious or economic or cultural systems of your country, you know, you you didn't choose a lot of these things. You didn't choose all the chains of prior causal events that, you know, then instantiate the realities of your life. You didn't choose serendipity and randomness that might happen to occur at any moment. But you do have some agency. And that agency, as far as I can tell, is where we focus our attention moment to moment. So ask yourself that seminal question, if you're listening and going into this year, where am I focusing my attention moment to moment? Because as I said, as far as I've been able to excavate, that is the crack in the window of agency, of free will. Hello, how's it going? Welcome to Happy Bear Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. Hope you're doing well. Yeah. Hope you're feeling good and I hope you're happy in your own skin. Genuine. That's very nice. Yeah. Um, So welcome. These uh, little intro segments were meant to have something prepared and be a bit organized and have something funny to say. I forgot to do my homework. So Sarah's probably going to fill it in with something really funny. (laughs) (laughs) well we never we never i think by saying that we have something planned dave is quite embarrassing because these are normally quite a fumble but i did have a little thought there where um i was just thinking of like our morning routines and how our days really never change like our winters summers and everything are exactly the same like i call i basically call dave and i'm like hey where are you you're like i'm at home eating my chia seed pudding i'm like great can i come over in five minutes I waddle over, you're having a foot bath. And the only thing that makes me realize it's winter is the fact that you're having a foot bath. In the summer, there'd just be no foot bath. We're sitting in the garden. <laughs> and then Steve comes along and he's like, oh, foot bath, great, can I jump in? And then the two twins have all four feet in this tiny little foot bath. <laughs> it is a nice way to start the day. It with is. a touch of luxury. Because just to give a context, with swimming in the sea every day, it's cold. And this time of year, your body, my body certainly feels cold. So putting it in a hot foot And you also after. don't shower. Uh, well, I do. I'm not like dirty. It was part, you know, I, I've had these chats, <laughs> I've had these conversations nice with Claus, my wife, who's strongly encouraging me to, you know, just embrace that side of myself that like, just because I'm a man doesn't mean I can't be like a really good washer. Well, her one thing in um, her... Um, <laughs> Wedding vows, I believe. Yeah. David, was to body. change my clothes more. <laughs> That's one of my vows. Now, this is all How's focused going, on me Dave? and I feel like I'm blushing. I changed my clothes yesterday. You have actually, I've noticed I do, that. like I do try to, like I have improved. For those of you who can't see, David is wearing a shirt today. I feel this is a little like a therapy session for Dave, but growing up in a family of four boys, obviously like, you know, you know, changing your clothes and washing wasn't like the top of, wasn't the biggest priority in my life. What was the priority, Dave? Having fun and like running and chasing balls, like 
like you know physical football <laughs> in case you're wondering and, uh, like just getting out and doing stuff I was going to say it's like competitiveness between the two twins. and it could have been competition over like dinner getting more dinner or it could have been competition over Who can brush doing their your teeth homework quicker. or it could be like yeah. it was we competed over but but my point my point there the story just to wrap it up and get a bit of closure on this before we move on to this therapy <laughs> session is that like that wasn't like washing we didn't compete about washing and changing no. our clothes so both of us have a bad habit and this is back to masculinity I think both of us have a slightly skewed version of masculinity I'm masculine I don't wash that much I don't shit real men don't wash that much and they don't change their clothes that much and I've started kind of evaluating that over the last while and go okay well it's good to change my clothes more and to wash more and I'm not just like I'm not smelly and stinky sometimes I am actually <laughs> most of the time I'm not <laughs> and what about your kids do you enforce washing on them absolutely I've gotten the habit sorry, sorry this is about me again but I brush, I've started brushing my teeth twice I've Don't always only brushed here. my teeth once a day and my dentist he's super lovely he says no it's, your teeth are your dental hygiene's not bad at all it's not great but it's not bad <laughs> and recently I've started doing it in the morning too and I, I really like it that's Brilliant. great well Go done Dave. Yeah, thanks. what about you Steve uh, I tend to struggle with it a bit like Dave dental hygiene or no, showering dental hygiene I'm alright dental hygiene I'm, doing, I'm reasonably good uh we live in an old house and we've got an old, uh, the showers in an old, you know, those lovely kind of cool baths. Those like, what, they're kind Ones of romantic. The four legs. The four legs. Cast, leg, cast iron bath. And the showers in it. So there's one step that kind of gets in the way of getting in the shower. It just seems one little bit further. And I often wonder, maybe we had a shower that didn't have the step, but I use it more. And then I think I'm only fooling myself. It's just, you know, I swim in the sea every day. I do shower a few times a week, uh, but it's definitely not something that, oh, I can't wait to get in the shower. Woo! You're the type of person, Steve, that if I went to your house for the first time and there was no door into the bathroom, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I remember going to the toilet and I had Ned, Theo, and I think May was the only one in your family who wasn't shouting and talking to you. And I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, lovely family. <laughs> and for the record, I shower every day and I brush my teeth twice a day. Yeah. I, I, like, okay, well, they say for your microbiome, just to give a bit of context, <laughs> just to kind of sleep. <laughs> To, to give a wide, to give a wide. Scientifically, now, are not sharing too much is scientifically proven that for a healthy benefit. microbiome, and um, they say it's like you know you want a bit of bacterial biodiversity and like kind of once not a to week, wash once twice a week, yeah, once twice, and a not week to use too much soap. So. Uh, <laughs> It was a gastroenterologist. Wait, let me try to remember her name. Uh, uh, Robin Shutkan. She she wrote a book called "Live Dirty, Eat Clean." Because and she she started rewilding herself to improve her micro. take that. One thing she had to move from was sharing every day to sharing once or twice a week because she found the benefits were. Wonderful for her microphone. And where is she now? Uh, she she went for Surgeon General in the US and oh. nearly got it. So she's pretty big deal. Okay, great. Yes, there we go. So back at you. Ooh. Anyway. Jeez, I'd take my jumper off there. I got so hot. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to need a shower now because I just got so hot there. Actually, I bathed. I had a bath last night. And you do jump in the sea every day. So yeah, I'll yeah. give you that. That isn't washing I jump though. in the sea without a bar so bad. <laughs> this time of year it tends to anyway, be Anyway, right. We're gone way. Okay. Anyway, this week's podcast, we're excited about it. We really genuinely are. And I think it's kind of in around our sweet spot. Like we're, it's like this business philosophy, spirituality, community, and belonging. community. And yeah, sense of Jeff Krasno, super cool dude, an American man, serial entrepreneur, started a company, co-founded a company called Wanderlust, which became a twenty-five million dollar company. It was like a yoga. 
um, Event Events with music and nature This, But this yoga company. before it was cool right? Yeah it was before cool It was back like in 1990s It 1990s was described as the Coachella for the wellness space Yeah pretty cool And subsequently now he's, he's, he's been married for 27 years Two years Oh, thank you, Stephen. Excellent work. Um, and he was featured as part of Oprah's Super Soul Sunday Top 100 as a... Entrepreneurs. An, yeah, as a very impressive entrepreneur. Certainly, his like he's been in the wellness space for nearly 40 years. Really impressive man. Father of three daughters. And wonderful pondering and interest in culture, life... And, and meaning. And meaning. So yeah, one of his big things is purpose and finding your true north. So yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Jeff is a really... Gorgeous, soulful man, and I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Before we start, I just wanted to tell you, if you are interested in wellness, if you're interested in forming new habits, eating more plant-based, moving more, meditating more, we've got a Happy Mind course. It's brilliant. It's done in our new app. Um, you can go to our website, thehappypair.ie, for more details on it. We've had more than 50,000 people through our online courses. They're fantastic. I love them. I get so much passion and pleasure to helping people transform their lives. Our apps are available on the App Store and the Google Play Store. But uh, you need to be a member to sign up for them. There you go. Anyway, check them out. Cheers. Are you are you a learn by um, like? Because maybe I'll give an example here. Because I remember Steve Steve beside me here. He was a snowboard instructor, and this is in Canada about twenty years ago. And he used to, he, he's like, Steve learns by doing. Like he's an absolute physical, needs to experience it and multiple times before he kind of processes and learns it. And I remember he was trying to learn to do a 360, like come off a ramp and then do a flying 360. And he said he went down and threw himself up off this ramp for a full week, like hundreds of <laughs> attempts. And finally he got it. He nailed it. And for the full yeah. week, his friend Connor was sitting there watching was Simon. Oh, Simon, I'm oh, sorry. Uh, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Simon was watching him. He was sitting there watching him for the full week. And then Simon's first go, he got up and he did it. And he just watched it. Like, yeah. And it's just, I think there's two different schools of learning. And one of them is learning by doing. And one of them is learning more by kind of theorizing and then kind of applying and contemplating. And I wonder, are you more the doing kind? The doer, or the contemplator? Uh, or that's, a hybrid? A, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'll apply it. I mean, for like, for let's say like Buddhism, for example. So I'm a little bit of a, uh, well, I'm a lay person um, as it as it pertains to Buddhism, but it is a a methodology I'll call it that I'm fascinated by, and you know I study it quite a bit, and um, and there is a lot of concepts to Buddhism, but at the end of the day the real goal of Buddhism is to actually let go of your clinging to all concepts and just experience oneness, integrated consciousness, or what Buddhism calls samadhi. And in that way, it is a religion, or I wouldn't call it a religion, really a science or a methodology based around direct experience. Like you can only actually eat its fruits by experiencing it directly. And, um, and so I think we can get quite caught up in, uh, in thought and, uh, and into intellectualization. And I certainly am apt to do that. But I, I yearn for that direct experience. The, the former comes quite easy to me, like I'm endlessly curious about learning things. Like in the last six months, 
along with the rest of the world. I've become uh, a microbiologist, a gastroenterologist, a uh, cardiologist, uh, a pulmonary expert. A sourdough baker. <laughs> Not as good, but actually we do have a culture in our, in our fridge uh, and a fermenter. Uh, so, but then, you know, you, you do have to um, reify these thoughts, you know, to make them, I, I think, valid. Uh, or 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 meaningful. Um, so I, I think I'm more of a uh, you know I I take things in more intellectually, but I will say there's an exception to that because physical activity. Like I grew up playing tennis and I I played competitive tennis and I'm still pretend that I'm 25 out there. In fact, I'm playing against this kid today who will certainly kick my ass. And I'm 51 and he's 29 and he's like a specimen and he played division one college here in the United States. But the moment I get out there, I don't think I'm 29 too. And this is dangerous for someone with a Go back. Jeff, go oh, Jeff. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, from, from the outside, the appearances are good. The scoreline is never impressive. Um, but for tennis, I, you know, I actually learned quite visually. Like I grew up watching, you know, Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe, uh, these kind of guys on, on TV. You know, my father was like one of the first people to buy one of these v VHS cassette, you know, video players. It looked like a piece of furniture. It was like a credenza in itself. And it sat on top. It was bigger than the TV. And, you know, you could put these big VHS tapes in there. And we would have, you know, what was the U.S. Open, which was one of the four big Grand Slam tennis tournaments. And I would sit there as a kid and I would record them all on this VHS. And then I'd watch them back and I'd stand in front of the TV and mimic the physical action. So, you know, John McEnroe is a lefty. I'm a lefty. Jimmy Connors was a lefty. I'm a lefty. So they both had very distinct different styles. So I had my Jimmy Connors game and then I had my McEnroe game. My McEnroe was a very finesse-like player and he was always kind of like jumping up and down gingerly every time he hit the ball. And so there was like these gesticulations that he would make. And then I would go out on the tennis court and I would mimic what I watched on TV. And, uh, you know, then we'd, I'd go out with my friends, many of whom were excellent players. And, you know, I would say, okay, today I'm John McEnroe. And I would, you know, mimic his style and the whole thing. And, and, and they pick another player. We had endless fun doing that. So um, I think, you know, with yoga, yeah, I certainly have a lot easy, easier time watching someone doing it and then mimicking it versus my wife, you know, barking a bunch of Sanskrit at me. You know, I, I'm just like, what put my heel behind my leg over my ear with my back and externally rotate my shoulder? Why? You know, I just get lost in that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> Very good. That's a good one. Uh, well, one, one topic I want to jump in with you, um, Jeff, is the topic of purpose. I know with um, Wanderlust, you kind of put it down or one of the goal of it is to find your sense of your true north or connecting with your inner self. And, you know, a lot of these words and to many people listening, you know, they could be cliched. What is your true self? You know, what is your true north? The sense of why are we going north anyway? Uh, but just I, I think the overriding team theme, sorry, not, team, so, good, good man, not so good at the THs. But uh, the under uh, the underlying concept is that sense of purpose, and I wonder if you could talk about the topic of purpose and finding purpose, and and certainly in your life, because you've had you know 
you're you're quote unquote successful like you've had businesses that have been great successes you're married you've got a number of kids like you've got you know from the outside you look in you're into buddhism you're into spirituality you've got lots of curiosities like what's your purpose and what is your take on it and how is that relevant to people listening mm -hmm. yeah okay so there's a, number, there there's a number of different levels of of meaning or purpose and um you know, Viktor Frankl is a hero of mine and just absolutely brilliant author. And uh, he claims that you find your meaning or your purpose in three different places. So you find it in your relationships, in your work or creativity, and you can also find your meaning or purpose in your suffering. And, and you can ask yourself, am I worthy of my suffering? And that was a phrase that he borrowed from Dostoevsky when he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. So I think about that, and I think about all of those three categories, and, um, and, and I give them primacy. So with my relationships, you know, okay, how present am I day-to-day, moment-to-moment in my relationships? Am I thrusting my needs or the court requirements of my ego onto someone else such that I can feel good so that I can satisfy this symbol that I have for myself that I call my ego? Or am, am I in a place of giving, of actually investing in someone else's thriving and well-being? So I often measure that when I'm trying to be aware, you know, with my children or with my friends or with my family, like how present am I in this moment for somebody else? And that is a good metric for meaning because the more present you are for the people within your ecosystem that you love, the more you will register high on the purpose meter. And, uh, and this will always come back to you, um, which is always the, the amazing um, discovery that you have over and over again, is that, you know, compassion and presence for somebody else is actually a gift that you give yourself. Um, and it, it seems anachronistic almost, but so relationships is a huge one. And, um, and then your work. Um, and I really think about this as creativity and curiosity. What do you, how, what is your state of being when you wake up every morning? Are you absolutely excited to, um, to delve into the day? Do you have myriad things? I mean, for me, there's so many things that I am excited about that it, it almost does create a little bit of anxiety. I actually have to watch myself there um, because I'm so interested and captivated by my work. And I think the metric for this is in your perception of time. So are there chunks within the day, uh, what I call ultradian cycles, these 90-minute cycles, um, that are sort of part of the overall circadian cycle where they seem just to disappear into thin air because you're so engrossed in the excavation of a certain topic or curiosity or creative work or endeavor. So again, that also comes down to presence. 
Like, and so when I think about playing the piano or learning something or reading something or whatever activity I happen to be engrossed in, am I hundred percent there in my work? And so I think, you know, those work and relationships takes you a really long way uh, into meaning and purpose. And, and then there is this very thorny, complicated topic of, of suffering. Um, and, you know, there's this trope in the spiritual circles or wellness circles. I'm sure you have um, uh, come across it. I mean, everyone has that, that um, you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And, okay, so... On some level, yeah, a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our suffering are, um, could be categorized as phantoms of our own projection. We have trauma in our life where we focus on that trauma of the past and project it into the future and create what I call negative anticipated memory. So we're actually creating memories that are negative that haven't even come to pass yet. <laughs> and so many of us live that way. So that is true, but, you know, that aphorism that, you know, pain is inevitable and suffering is optional, it really, it, it almost demeans the work that one has to go through to actually um, expiate themselves of trauma. Um, it, you know, you don't, you, you don't confront your phantoms um, you know, with just a green juice or a magic pill, you know, oftentimes, you know, managing your suffering and your trauma is really hard wrought work um, and really requires a dedication to a tremendous amount of inner work. And then what is on the other side of that? And this is what we have to, to ask ourselves. So there's a wonderful author, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, writes a lot about grief um, and dealing with pain and suffering. Um, and then this is not something that we're ever taught, at least in my school um, growing up, that was not part of the curriculum. Like, how do you manage grief? Five steps. Um, and uh, so this is something that we all, you know, often have to learn on our own. And, you know, there's, there's this uh, meandering line, you know, to managing suffering in one's life. You know, it's denial and anger and bargaining and depression, and then finally some kind of acceptance, hopefully. And then where, what comes on the other side of that? And can you find meaning on the other side of your grief? So, for example, I just interviewed this woman yesterday, um, Scarlett Lewis, whose son was murdered. Um, at the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in 2012 in the United States. It was one of the biggest mass shootings, at, at least at that time. Unfortunately, there's been 350 school shootings in the United States since 2012. Um, wow. But she, she lost her son that day. And, um, you know, obviously she went through a period of grief, but she found compassion for the killer, for Adam Lanza. Um, and she started to uh, do research about his life, 
about how he had been uh, diagnosed with a bunch of different mental illnesses and depression. He was anorexic at the time of the killing. He was a shut-in. Um, he was what does obviously, a shut-in mean? Uh, well, he never left his room. Okay, and wow. um, and uh, he had no um, therapy support. He had no wellness modalities. He had no meditation practice. He had no access to help. And so what she decided was like, you know, the best thing I can do in this moment is to prevent, in order to prevent other um, shootings like this, is to start a foundation called the Choose Love Movement, where she brings social and emotional learning to children. And she did that because she found compassion for her son's killer. I mean, if you can imagine that, you know, she found forgiveness there. It's it sounds, the, uh, it's, yeah. it sounds really like Byron Katie's work. Cause I know, I remember one year, a good, a good decade ago, going to her New Year's Eve cleanse in LA, a friend ended up, I ended up over there and I hadn't, wasn't really familiar with work, but, um, she, I was sitting there in the room and she had someone up there who was raped and she kind of did her, her process, her four questions and the person, you know, it was all about the person becoming, getting compassion for the person who, you know, raped her. And I watched this woman kind of transform and the amount of tears and whatnot until she kind of felt like a genuine kind of heartfelt. And it certainly looked it anyway, watching it where she felt, you know, where she had a, she really felt like she connected with this person who had raped her. And that was part of the forgiveness process, it seemed. Yeah. And, you know, and so we all, I mean, Scarlett's situation and her circumstances were so egregious and so gruesome and odious that many of us might see our own grief as trivial relative to hers. But she tells this story about how then she and her elder son, who was left alive, went and met um, a bunch of kids from Rwanda and then heard their stories. And they were, then were like, well, our grief is trivial in comparison to theirs. And so I think the, the moral of that story is that, you know, we all have grief. You know, we all are managing this basic human condition, which the Buddha called dukkha, and which is unsatisfactoriness, which is suffering, which is frustration. And the question then comes, what will we make of that? And uh, with the limited free will and agency that we have, how can we find meaning within that default human condition? So, you know, that, that I believe is the hardest and most arduous place to find meaning and purpose in one's life. But, um, but in some ways, I think the most fulfilling. So what, that's what an, yeah. what an answer relationships. So we got like finding meaning in relationships, being more present in relationships, being more present in work and creativity and somehow finding meaning and suffering. And when you're talking about the third one of finding meaning and suffering, it made me think of like, when I feel crap, like some days when I feel crap, I'm kind of aware that there's like, there might be a, a frustration or an anxiousness within me. And I'm also aware that like, and I'm kind of excited that when I can actually just be with it for when it passes, because when it does pass, there is like the state of presence afterwards is so rewarding. You know, when it, like, and I think of it, sometimes I feel 
pressured about work or I feel something or whatnot. And then it then then throughout the day it passes and then I'm left with this peace and it kind of like I think that's part of it. It's finding that realizing that suffering is part of it and then when it a bit like the clouds part and the sun comes out. Yeah. Well the-, the nature of emotion uh and suffering is always transitory. And our great challenge is to not fixate on it and identify with it, but come to a state of understanding or a sensation that we are the precondition for observing and witnessing it as phenomenon passing moment to moment in our life. So we didn't put that frustration there. It simply appeared like a thought, you know, or a sound. And it will arise and it will subside. And the more uh, practice or meditation that one engages with, the more refined one's capacity is just to witness it and observe it arise and subside. And that's it. And, you know, oftentimes, like I, I, I think about anxiety and that feeling of anxiety. And it's... um you know, that butterflies in your stomach, or maybe you feel a little bit nauseous and your your heart rate is up and your respiratory rate increases. And, uh, and maybe that's associated with a particular kind of phobia or public speaking or going to the doctor's office or whatever it happens to be. We all have that. And notice quietly how similar that physical sensation is to actually being excited about something positive in your event, in your life. And the only difference between that sensation and the sensation of excitement of, you know, my daughter going to her, you know, end of the year dance or going to a party or going to a new year's event, or, you know, having a big uh, event in your life or a book release or et cetera. The only difference between those sensations is the valence, the emotional valence we assign to it. So oftentimes the physical sensation is quite similar. And so in a way, and it's like over time, you become able to witness these phenomena uh, arise in consciousness in your field of awareness without assigning valence or salience to them, just actually witnessing them arise and subside and of course that's a that's a you skill said two words there you said time. two words you said two words there valence and some other word beginning with s that i can't remember now salience salience what do they mean like so i agree with everything that you said like that the sensations are, are so similar between suffering and then also with excitement even if you think about it in spanish nerviosa and in english you know when you think of nervousness <laughs> it's seen as a negative thing it has a negative right. construct and it's seen through kind of that's bad versus in spanish nerviosa can also mean positive it's kind of in this neutral space and i think what you described there is literally that that we tend to see and this excited possible it's literally down to the paradigm which we, we see the world and ultimately that's you know we can create a heaven of hell or a hell out of heaven depending on our our perspective or perspective that's or our paradigm that's exactly it that's funny i didn't know that that etymology in um in spanish but i will uh i will refer to that i'll borrow that license free from you <laughs> and then en, enamorado or whatever isn't that like to to love someone um to quiero is like i want Encantado. you to say i love you is i want you which is like you know the way we 
we in our culture nowadays like love that's the feeling that most of us want to get and it's so romanticized that you're in a new relationship and the love and the feeling and that's kind of what we're all looking for and then when you use that word in spanish when you say i love you to someone it's tiquero which means i want mm. you because there's this like needy slightly desperation i want to own you and be possess you and that's kind of part of the feeling as well which i think is very interesting the roots of words yeah yeah in terms of Valence, I, I often use that word um, when I'm talking about empathy. So empathy can be understood as the donning of someone else's emotional clothing. Okay. But it doesn't have a particular valence to it. So in other words, you might associate with someone's misery and take on that immiseration, or you might uh, associate with someone's joy and take on their happiness. So because empathy doesn't have a valence to it, it's neither positive or negative. It doesn't have a specific charge. It could go either direction. So um, I think there's something interesting between this idea of empathy and compassion, for example, um, where, like I said, empathy is... Um, protein, there's another good word. Um, uh, it's flexible in terms of the emotion that you take on. So you might be sad, because someone else is sad, or you might be happy because someone else is happy. And you have an, uh, an emotional intelligence or sensibility that allows you to connect with that happiness or sadness easily. But compassion always has a positive valence. It is always about bringing an effusive kind of uh, loving kindness to the presence of suffering. So it always is positive. And it all, also always has agency. Like empathy doesn't necessarily have agency. You, don't have, you can feel bad for someone or feel happy for someone, but you don't really need to do anything about it. But compassion always has a positive valence. You're always bringing loving kindness in a positive and effervescent way to a situation of suffering. And you're doing it with the express intent of alleviating that suffering. And this is why compassion is the, perhaps the highest of all virtues. And and so not only are you bringing loving kindness to the presence of suffering in a manner that intends to alleviate that suffering, but you, but compassion, just the word itself is that my, it's, it's concomitant with all these uh, kind of um, like Ubuntu in, in African culture or um, Buddhist concepts of the, of mutual interdependence or um, I think there's a Japanese concept, Jiji uh, Muji, Gigi Muji, I think it is, where essentially they all mean something similar, which is I am because we are. It's yoga. It's absolute utter sense of connection where you stop seeing yourself as a separate individual separate from this external universe, separate from each other, in competition with each other, separate from nature, in competition from nature, separate from the divine, all of this. And you see yourself as absolutely integrated into the logos, into the fabric of life, 
where my plight and my existence is has no separation from yours, that we just appear um, that that there is only the world, that the phenomenon of what it is like to be Jeff Krasno has no separation from what it is like to be a tree or what it is like to feel happiness or sadness. And so compassion, once you begin to engage in active compassion, where you are bringing loving kindness to the presence of suffering, you begin to embody a state of being of integrated consciousness of what the Buddha called samadhi, or in Hindu traditions, moksha, or I suppose in Christian traditions, Christ consciousness or unity consciousness, where those walls of separation really break down, where the ego dissipates, and you really feel this sense of integration with the world around you. And, and once you are able to achieve glimpses of that state, a lot of like really beautiful epiphanies emerge and you start to see like this coherence within nature um, and how that there's this intelligence, uh, this foundational intelligence in the world that is always trying to bring opposites together into coherence and beauty that, you know, we have these amazing plants that grow this photosynthetic life that you know catalyzes the sun's energy to create oxygen and glucose so we can exist you know and that then we take that oxygen and glucose and synthesize it and create carbon dioxide and water which is what they need to exist <laughs> this is mu complete mutual interdependence and these kind of systems like the carbon cycle exist everywhere in nature that the dance this this tango of positive charges and negative charges repulse and attract each other and they form energy electricity or the foundational component of 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 an atom whose integrity is bound through the positively charged proton and the negatively charged electron or the yin and the yang in eastern religions you know so what you begin to see you know, as you become more integrated into the fabric of life is that we are constantly in this, uh, in this dance and within this energy field of pulling opposites into coherence. And, uh, and that gets to be like a really exciting enterprise. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's, that's a gorgeous expression. It integrated into the fabric of life. Like that, that's, that's, and I think what you're saying there is to kind of like, you know, as you said, to, to kind of where the, the, where you start to melt more and become, there tends to be more of a union with life. Well, like I, I think to create a, a greater context, the sense of so many of modern day living celebrates the individual and celebrate and vindicates the individual when they, they're not doing the, what society wants them to do. And I think the more us as individuals can remember that we're part of the greater fabric of life and to sense to, to lose that sense of ego drive and that sense of think more as that sense of we the more we move into well-being harmony of life and we kind of sense to surrender and life just happens we don't happen life life happens to us and it yeah. just kind of flows in this beautiful in an easier less forced way except except the challenges of that is that like you know the the kind of current current culture which we're all fed is like 
you know, everyone wants to be successful and have lots of money and have a house and have a beautiful partner or not. And, you know, this, the, the dream that most people are looking for is very ego and egocentric. So this is at a complete juxtaposition to, as you said, to melting into the fabric of life and surrendering more to that process. So it's almost like society and modern current culture is telling us one. Ego, you know, it's, ego, ego, ego. It's ego. telling it, you know, you can have it all. You can be it all. Yet, like the more we can melt into the fabric of life and surrender our ego, probably the more harmonious and probably the more present life is going to be. Absolutely. Well, I think what you just described was what um, Lao Tzu, the um, originator of Taoism, called Wu Wei, which is effortless action, uh, which is action without intent. So, and a lot of people confuse this um, with lack of ambition, but it's actually not true. It's actually just moving through life with the grain of the wood. And not against the grain of the wood. Oh, I like that. The grain of the wood. That's nice. With the wind yeah, at your back I mean, as opposed to into the wind. It, exactly. Yeah. It's 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 planting in rich soil inst- instead of trying to I- inject endless chemical fertilizers and glyphosate into arid, degraded soil. You know, I mean, there's a million metaphors that you could pull from it, but that uh, and and don't confuse it with lack of ambition. You know, people can still want to instantiate better quality of life and greater well-being uh, without necessarily being so attached to the outcomes all the time. And so, you know, w- you know, we all, you know, you guys have ambitions. I have ambitions, um, and those are good. And our ambitions are generally aligned with our highest principles, and that that isn't. A life of integrity, um, but let's not be so attached to the outcomes. Because the more attached we become to the outcomes, the more attached we become to this symbol of the ego of like, well, I'm only successful if I have this, or you know, am judged in this particular way. And and this is the pitfalls of the ego that tells us, you know, we are what we have, we are what people think of us, you know, we are what we accumulate. Um, et cetera. So, and then I think, you know, to your, to your other point of, of, you know, that culture has created uh, a, a paradigm in which happiness is always something out there, like within our grasp, but not within our heart. And so we, Again, <laughs> back to Buddhism, that this idea of suffering is based around Trishna or unquenchable thirst, unquenchable craving. And there's an image in Buddhism in the, uh, in the, the Wheel of Life called the Hungry Ghost, that we end up becoming these these beings with huge appetites and massive stomachs but tiny little mouths as if we just sipping out of a minuscule straw. And that keeps us in this constant state of. I want more. I want more. I want more, 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 more. Dementors. And, and the moment that we achieve that thing or obtain that particular goal, well, we get sort of a momentary biochemical, you know, surge of dopamine or whatever it might be. But then some glittery, shiny object appears on the horizon and the gap between what we have and what we want 
opens up again into a chasm. And so then one way of then finding happiness, well, is to continue to chase that thing out there and then achieve it or obtain it. And then again, it, it, it gapes open. But that is what's called the hedonic treadmill. Because we never achieve, we never obtain the thing out there because there's always another thing uh, to crave and to cling to. And uh, one of the great stoic meditations or contemplations is to, to love and to want what you already have. So there's a, there's actually a meditation around this, which is you fixate or you focus on something that you have that you treasure. That's something that is like a family heirloom, or I don't know, could be like your favorite worn in flannel or whatever it happens to be a relationship that you have in your life. And you focus in on that, on something that you truly cherish that is within your life. And then this initially sounds a bit morose, but it's not. But you imagine then losing that thing that you cherish. And you sit in that for a moment, in that pain and in that grief. And then you come back to the realization that you actually have that thing. And that meditation elicits a sense of incredible gratitude, of thankfulness for what is in your life and you stop fixating on the thing out there and you end up loving what you already have. Yeah, kind of, it kind of builds on that idea that the sense of the richest person is not the person who wants the most, it's the per person who needs the least, you know, because yeah. ultimately you're happy with what you have. So yeah, totally agree. I think that's where... And, and I think it comes back into like, you know, you see certainly over the last decade, maybe the last 15 years, the word manifesting your dreams or manifesting your dream life. Like, you know, it's quite a common thing in spirituality and, you know, modern positive culture or whatnot. And ultimately, you know, the root of all that tends to be that if you, like, if you're someone that's hungry for money, like desperately hungry for it, you're less likely to fall, you know, to, to come into lots of money. Whereas if you're someone that's probably very content with what they have, and is still kind of working towards things, but not attached to them, they're probably more likely to get that money. My story wasn't the best there. No, it was a good effort. Thanks. Yeah, uh, in terms, just, just to bring it back to anyone listening, that sense of purpose, uh, like I could talk philosophy all day long. I love it. This is one of my favorite um, areas to talk about. But the sense of purpose, for anyone listening there who's struggling to find a sense of purpose and struggling to kind of connect in with their sense of authentic self, the sense of true north, their sense of what gives them meaning. Are there any kind of suggestions that you'd have for anyone listening that kind of... Because one thing, one thing Steve always says, like when someone asks, because you, you're a very purposeful creature, and you'll always say, well, like, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert, she wrote a great book on one of her books anyway. And she had the idea that instead of trying to follow your passion, follow your curiosities, because there's much less commitment to them and just keep following them like you're on a wild scavenger hunt until you, you know, it unfolds. And before you know it, you've found this great big passion of yours, which was collecting stamps, which you never realized or whatever it might be. And I thought that was a really lovely analogy, which you used to talk about. And I wonder if you've got any kind of thoughts on in that kind of context of someone that's looking for their passion. Like it's the start of a new year. There's great opportunities. People go, oh, great, right. Here we go. 2022 is going to be my year. What's the answer, Jeff? <laughs> well, I do. I also subscribe to that. Um, 
that curiosity thread, I think it's a great one. You know, you don't always have to have the clear goal in mind because life really is process and not product. Uh, in fact, the product is the process. Um, so I would... Could you explain advise. that a little more? Explain that a little more because that's there's so much wisdom in that like very phrase. Life is more about the process rather than the product. Yeah, well, tomorrow never comes. And yesterday didn't exist. <laughs> All we have at our disposal is the everlasting now, is this very moment and this one and this one. And so what the like more they... That one too. I'll give you that one. <laughs> Although I don't know, it's a little sketchy. Um, and uh, so, you know, when we are living only in the future, then we're not here. And, and so we can degrade our process, the actual experience of what it is like to be alive in pursuit of some sort of uh, you know, intangible future that may or may not come to pass. So, you know, I think, you know, day to day, moment to moment, how are you going to focus your attention? Because when you really dissect what it is like to be human and these notions of free will, you, you know, you didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose your genetics, you didn't choose the environment or the era in which you were born, you didn't choose the religious or economic or cultural systems of your country, you know, you, you didn't choose a lot of these things, you didn't choose all the chains of prior causal events that, you know, then instantiate the realities of your life. You didn't choose serendipity and randomness that might happen to occur at any moment. But you do have some agency. And that agency, as far as I can tell, is where we focus our attention moment to moment. So ask yourself that seminal question, if you're listening and going into this year, where am I focusing my attention moment to moment? Because as I said, as far as I've been able to excavate, that is the crack in the window of agency, of free will. So moment to moment, who am I going to be? How am I going to show up? Okay. Then there is obviously goals and projects and what I might call sort of the contents of consciousness. If we're living just kind of as pure consciousness all the time, moment to moment, well, that's, it's hard to have friends and make plans and run businesses that way, you know, so we're balancing between living within this kind of field of awareness and being very present and being kind of cultivating this sacred non-judgmental presence with the contents of consciousness, how are we going to plan in our the projects of our life? So, you know, when we talk, when you brought up manifesting, you know, there is this notion, and this is something I think Wayne Dyer probably brought first into my awareness, but this idea of two concepts of manifesting. One is manifesting from the end. So what does that mean? It's getting very, very clear about 
a particular project or business or relationship or goal in yourself, you know, and, and, and really getting a lot of fluency around what that is and what that looks like and what that means, and then manifesting from the end. So every day when you wake up, you really are just chopping wood and carrying water in service of this very clearly identified mission. Because when you are focused around mission, you're generally um, designing that in alignment with your highest principles, okay? Like, I want to have an impact. I want to bring wellness modalities and meditation and personal growth and regenerative agriculture, all these things that I'm focused on. I want to bring them to a billion people. That's a great goal to have. There's nothing wrong with having that goal. But it because every day when I wake up, I'm really just chopping wood and carrying water in service of that goal. And so it doesn't become confusing and I can then really focus on process. So I would say, get really clear about where you want to go. And then Wayne Dyer also brought this other concept of, of manifesting, which is you don't need to manifest anything into your life. You need to manifest who you already are. And at first, that rings a little woo-woo to me, to be honest. But we, but but there is great wisdom in it. You know, we obviously all need to have our basic needs met. We need our we need food. We need water. We need shelter. We need clothes. We need belonging. Um, we need a sense of self worth. Um, and those are those are qualities that we all need to establish as, as lower ends of the pyramid on this hierarchy of needs. But if we can establish those things, everything else that sits on the top of that pyramid, you know, self-realization, the ability to really improve the condition of humanity, the ability to be creative day in and day out, all of those things we already have, they all lie inherently within us. And so in that sense, we just need to manifest who we already are. And, uh, and a lot of that is just, again, where you're going to put your attention moment to moment. Wow. I like the way you wrap that up, brought it back to where you started. Back to focus, back to present. Okay, there's so many, there's so many topics here. Like this, I'm really enjoying this so much. It really is. There's so many spiritual nuggets of wisdom that I'm getting great things out of. And there was a couple of like when I was I was reading lots of stuff earlier and kind of going, okay, what are we going to talk to Jeff about? And Steve said, right, belonging and purpose. Yeah, let's definitely talk about that. That'd be great fun. Let's see see what we can chat about that. And then there was another two things which came up when I was like, you know, because there's so much stuff. Like you've been very productive in your 51 years. Um, and I'm wondering about community and connection. There are two words, because obviously you have commune as being your, uh, where we originally got in touch with you, your brilliant online business where your, you know, where your goal is to reach a billion people and influence them in terms of wellness and meditation and whatnot. And I just wonder in your thoughts in terms of community and connection and, you know, how that 
is in the world today and your basic thoughts? Like, it's a massive question, but really your thoughts on the topic of community and the need for it right now with each one of us. Yeah. Well, I can't remember which of you mentioned the, the fact that we tend to sanctify the individual uh, more than ever at this moment. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and we, yeah, we all have a certain self. Um, we all have personal histories and, you know, we have a underlying nucleotide sequence that informs our DNA. So I'm not going to say that there's no self at all. Um, but it's every spiritual and, uh, philosophical tradition really points us to cultivating a sense of non-self or connection or kind of sense that we're part of something greater. In fact, spirituality might be just defined as this realization that we are all connected by something that is greater than us. And, you know, I've certainly been disturbed and concerned, uh, you know, if there's anything that should unveil our complete mutual interdependence, um, it's a viral pandemic because obviously it, the nature of how viruses spread um, points to interconnection and and human connectivity. And in my mind, this could be something that we could rally around to rediscover our sense of the collective good. And in, in some countries and in some cultures, people have done that. And there has been a tremendous self-sacrifice uh, in the name of the collective good. And in many of those countries that have been successful, they've discovered that the collective good and individual rights have turned out to be one and the same thing because the cultures that were able to cohere and actually beat back uh, coronavirus, in some cases without even the vaccine, are the countries that have the most individual freedoms. So it is, it is a conundrum on some level, but it goes to show that when we actually come together and we value each other in a particular way and are willing to have the courage to make certain sacrifices for each other, then that also enhances our ability to be free as individuals. But, you know, on a, on a greater meta level about community, I mean, obviously our species is hardwired for connection. Every single human project of worth has been predicated on our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale. So we look at bees, you know, bees cooperate flexibly, uh, or I'm sorry, bees cooperate at scale, but not necessarily flexibly, like the queen dies or whatever, you know, the chimp chimps, you know, can cooperate with a certain amount of flexibility, um, but not at scale. But humans do have the ability, you know, to connect with each other and accomplish incredible things, but it, it requires cooperation. And it, co and it also requires sort of an intersubjective understanding of reality. 
and you know what has been so degraded over the past decade but certainly over the past few years has been this basic sense of epistemology like we just don't agree on the truth anymore and um you know we're all served up little fragments of of uh, of a of truth that are algorithmically curated for each one of us that fuels our tribalism and extremism and social and political polarization, et cetera. And so I think it's really hard right now to find community and cooperation because we're so isolated and, you know, we've been led down so many of these extreme paths and, you know, it's very hard to delineate between fact and fiction and, you know, all of the prevalence of misinformation, et cetera. So, you know, we have, I think perhaps the greatest challenge before us is rediscovering um, our collective humanity and finding common ground. And, um, and I, I think that you, the only way to do that is having conversation, a really difficult, thorny conversation with each other, being in community with each other, because community all, almost always moderates and almost, it almost, it always dulls the edges. You know, when you're just doing, you know, private acts happening in public on Facebook or on Twitter, it's very easy to demean and dehumanize someone else. I mean, if you spend any time on those platforms, they're just, it's basically just ad hominem soup. Um, and, uh, but when we're face to face, it's, it's hard to hate up close. And, you know, I see this over and over again. Um, you know, when people actually come together in the same room, you might be, you know, take any, um, you know, inflammatory issue, you know, like abortion in this country, it's like, there's pro-life people. And, you know, they're like looking down their nose with moral indignation at the, um, at the left to be like, how dare you not respect the, the you know, the, un, the life of the unborn. And then people on the left have the same moral indignation and they're looking back at the people on the right and they're screaming, how dare you not, you know, respect the right of a woman and her and the right to choose, you know, what happens to her own body. And they're just screaming at each other. And it's so much easier just to scream at each other because if we actually tempered our tempers, we'd actually realize that both sides are, based in something deeply moral that are it's almost morally unassailable both sides and it's only when people actually come face to face and have you know some of these conversations and recognize each other's true common humanity be like oh well you're coming from a moral place i'm coming from a moral place let's actually address solutions you know to a common problem and um and so, you know, I see like this in, in, in like my friend, Dr. Mark Hyman, he's running clinical trials at the Cleveland Clinic, treating diabetics in two different groups. He's treating one as a group and one as individuals. And the recovery rate amongst the people that he's treating in the group is like three or four X, the, pe the people that are being treated as individuals. Brilliant. And I see this, yeah, I see this as a woman who started this initiative in Denver building uh, um, gardens, uh, community gardens. And I think they've built 200 community gardens in Denver, Colorado. And they did a, a, a clinical study along the way, and they're showing rates of you know, anxiety and depression amongst people that are 
that have engaged in this community garden effort with a control group of people who haven't and the levels of depression and anxiety just right down. And because people are in community, they're getting their hands dirty with other people. And so over and over again, we, we learn, uh, you know, this lesson that, you know, we are absolutely 100% social creatures. In fact, your, the, your epigenetics and mine are changing the expression of our DNA and our genes and what's happening in our cells are changing right now in this conversation, just through our interaction with each other. So (laughs) this is, um, you know, the, these notions that I am this individual self, this sovereign um, body, you know, I, I didn't make my own oxygen. Uh, I didn't make my own, I didn't make glycolysis. I didn't make the Krebs cycle. <laughs> I didn't make any of these things. These things, um, you know, I'm more than half bacteria and fungi and archaea. And, um, and so, this notion that I am this stable, reliable self separate from the rest of the world is just an illusion. And you can look at medical science to prove that, um, or you can look at Eastern religions to prove that, but we really, really just need at this time to find ways to establish a more, a greater sense of connectivity. Wow. I I think it comes back to like when you talked about the two different people in the same room with different um, opinions, it comes right back to what you were talking about, compassion and empathy, you know, those being two of the biggest things. And then, um, yeah, there was something else clever I was going to say there, but I I forgot it now. So sorry about that. Well, compassion wasn't compassion being the highest thing because compassion had a positive valence versus oh, look empathy yeah, had a more shit. neutral oh, valence. Good there we go. Uh, no, no, no. But it was back to back to what you were talking about, the lady who you interviewed yesterday whose son got killed in the massacre. And back to that mm-hmm. she, true compassion, true empathy and true actually taking the time, she managed to forgive the person who actually killed her son. And I think it's only that when, in terms of when you said, when, when you bring people together in a room, when you can actually understand the other person, that's when, like, and we live in a small town in Ireland, which is, you know, like, you know, we would have had lots of ideas about the, how the world should be. But when you're out there amongst uh, such a differing views of opinion, you've, you know, it is a melting pot where it's almost like cooking a pot of soup. Like, you know, the carrots can't just be carrots. They kind of blend with the onions and the tomatoes and it, and it, it forms this cacophony of soup and you add a bit of salt and boom, you got a lovely uh, recipe. And it rounds your edges. Yeah. Which is, which is what the you edges. Said. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Carrots become flavored with onions and and vice versa. And you know, you know what we really want. And I think about this a lot visually. You know, or before I say what we want, I'll say kind of how I am witnessing the state of the human condition right now. We seem to be in a world that's increasingly flat with spikes at the edges. So, you know, we have in this country, Republicans and Democrats, and it keeps getting more and more extreme and everything, every issue is is defined in these binary oppositions and polar opposites, et cetera. But it's not just politics. I mean, we are growing wheat, soy, um, corn and sorghum and nothing else. You know, we are, we have tens of billions of humans, pigs, cows, and, uh, um, and chickens, and no other species. We have 
three people in the United States that own more collective wealth than the bottom 50% combined. You know, we are increasingly have this flat world with just a spike at the end or spikes at the end. And again, if we talk kind of earlier in the, in our conversation, we talk about the logos, the kind of foundational intelligence of nature. Nature is the opposite of that. Nature wants abundant biodiversity. Nature wants the bell curve. Nature doesn't want a flat earth with spikes at the end. Nature wants abundant biodiversity. It wants a huge middle class with a local jazz club and a local newspaper and basically everything that you guys are doing in your town. It's like what, what nature wants is vegetable garden and all sorts of different crops. You know, this is what we're, we're looking for is what I often see as a, as, as, as a bush, it's a sort of two dimensionally, it's, it's portrayed as a bell curve, but we want something clumpy, you know, we want something that looks like the brain or the vascular system or the gut, you know, all of these expressions of nature or a mycelium network, you know, that, that goes underneath into our soil, you know, that looks almost exactly like neurons in a, in a brain. If you actually look at the image of it, we want these kind of clumpy interconnected kinds of systems. We don't want this flat earth. And, um, and so I think, you know, this is, you know, when we talk about, well, what do we need to do to kind of reorganize culture and, and society? Well, you know, what we also want is that soup of ideas. We want a multiplicity of ideas because like when nature takes biodiversity and it clumps it together, it ends up selecting for the best ones. And so if we treat ideas like genes and we can have real public discourse and a variety and multiplicity of interesting and different ideas coming from all sorts of places, then it follows that nature will also select the best ideas. But when we have this flat universe, we don't have very many ideas. We have just the ideas that exist at the very, very edge. And just by the, the laws of nature, those aren't going to yield the best ones. So my, when I think about a visual representation of what the world should look like, it should look like, like a tree or a bush, you know, this three-dimensional bell curve of all these kind of intersecting networks. And, I, you know, I think that that's, that is a portrayal of health that we see in the human body and in, in nature and natural systems and terrestrial systems everywhere. And we should do our best to live in accordance with nature. Beautiful. I love that. That's a beautiful place. I think to park this, that sense of the, 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 the sense of celebrating diversity, the sense of hearing one another and allowing other others and other voices to be celebrated, to be given room to and allow breathe and develop and grow and prosper. But like, like the, I know we're, we're landing the ship now, but the, like the, it's very difficult to see it in the current state of the world now where there's so much power and so much resources with so few and mm -hmm. all the rest of us kind of in the middle, you know, 
feeling like you're less and less relevant by the day and more and more of a drone within the machine, it's kind of hard to go, wow, how is this ship going to turn around? Like, where's this bell curve coming? Well, like, where well, do we... it's, it's in essence the sense of local taking back yes. the sense of civil yeah. responsibility and the civil power that the sense of it's, it's the individual that celebrates the togetherness, not just leaving it up. Oh, I'm part of the system. You are the system. We are the system. We all have the power to change it. And it's into our daily actions, the sense of celebrating diversity, taking responsibility, engaging in our towns, engaging our communities rather than sitting back and giving out and whinging and saying, why aren't they doing this? Get involved and make change. We all have the power to create the world we want. Nice. Amen. Good one, Steve. Yeah. Like that. Okay. Okay. Good one. Yeah. I like that. That's a good place to wrap up. Jeff, you're great. You really are. I enjoyed this. That was like, you was, was, you're so elegant. You eloquent. So you're, you're like a poet. Yeah. You're like, you're very easy to listen to as well. Like, it's very easy. Like, cause there's so much going on. Like you're, you're really smart. It's great. Well, I, well done. Yeah. I'm still synthesizing to be honest. And I'll just say that I'm just a product of plagiarism or synthesis, however you want to categorize it. I've had just the extraordinary fortune to be around brilliant people all the time. And, you know, over time, there's a little osmosis that takes place, you know, where I'm just gleaning the best ideas of all of these incredible people that, that I've gotten to be around. And then, you know, over time, you begin to synthesize. And right now, I'm just kind of like, a, I, I try to recognize where I am along that journey, I'm just like a hose. I'm just kind of like, you know, word salading in your direction. But, you know, the more one does that, and it's sort of this kind of back and forth between listening and then expressing, the more one does synthesize and then hone an understanding of the world. And, and it's great fun. And I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to do it with you guys. Um, and I really, uh, I, I um I exhort everyone to do it because it 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 what it's what makes life vibrant and um and fun and it's part of that curiosity journey. So subject well, well, yourself well, to all sorts of ideas, you know. <laughs> and and on on exactly what you said in terms of purpose, you said presence within relationships. And right now, something which I've thoroughly enjoyed in this is actually being really present and listening to you within this relationship which we're having right now. And it's you know it's it definitely has given great purpose to me. So I would yeah. actually recommend that everyone in the world hosts a podcast. Only because it forces you to be 100% present for 60 or 90 minutes. It is, it is like a meditation because you are absolutely here and now. You are not checking any device. You're not responding to any notifications. Your mind is not wandering any other place. I am here with you guys 100%. And that is the great blessing of actually hosting or being on a podcast. And in a way, it's a trick. <laughs> so you trick yourself into being present um, by, by having this overlay of a podcast. So in that way, I, I, I actually um, I advise everyone to host a podcast or something like it. And it might just be putting aside 90 minutes to have an absolutely uninterrupted conversation with people that you're really interested in. And I suppose that's what totally we've done agree. today. 100%, 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. Totally. Hey, Jeff, for anyone listening, how can they find out more about your wonderful work? Because I know you've Wanderlust, you've One Commune, and then... You've got three books. 
uh, Commusings, which came out recently. Like Commune's brilliant. There's so much content on that. Really. Anyway, we shouldn't answer, yeah, Jeff. Would, you have. Yeah, I just go to go to onecommune.com. It's O-N-E commune.com. And, you know, there you'll find all of these amazing teachers that I've referred to from uh, Wim Hof and Byron Katie and Russell Brand and Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra. So we've made Zach uh, Bush. brilliant Zach Bush, all these brilliant uh, video courses. I think over a hundred of them. God bless Jacob, my partner. Um and uh and so there's a there's a huge library of online courses that we've really thrown our soul into and then uh, as i said i'm fortunate enough to host a podcast uh every week where i have um conversations with different folks um and that's uh, the called the commune podcast and you can access that through the onecommune.com website or just on apple podcast so that's it brilliant you're thank great. you jeff you're amazing you really are such a I really, I love that. I love getting deep into philosophy. I love it. Thanks for this, Jeff. Yeah, thank you guys. And I will talk with you guys soon. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it and hope you got something. He's, Jeff is so easy to listen to. And He's so eloquent. Like, yeah, I want to be really smart like him. words were so beautiful, so gracious, so conceptual. It was lovely what, to kind what of was that one hang around uh, Vale. Valence. Valence. Valence of emotions. I thought that was, there was two words. It was valence of emotion. What was the other one? Yeah, it was, it was like uh, s- s- something beginning with S. There was loads of big words yeah, anyway. Really got to work on our but, words. Uh, beautiful. Really in terms of purpose and belonging, purpose and meaning. I thought those were beautiful ones that in terms of presence in your relationships, which all of us could do it more of that. Certainly I think of it in myself. Presence within our work and creativity. Beautiful. And then the last one was presence within suffering, which um, is a little more difficult. And the big thing that I got was the sense of moving beyond our sense of I. So much of our life, at least my life, is consumed with I, I want, I need. And the more I think the sense of the true sense of union or life and the sense of, you know, self-actualization is a sense of moving beyond the sense of I and into the collective, the sense of that your happiness is my happiness, your sadness is my sadness. And the more we can move towards a society that celebrates that. And also taking context that I think as they say on an airplane, put your own life jacket on first, not everyone else's. Because I think it's a bit like Gabor Mate says, like the people sometimes that don't think of themselves at all can often, you know, he says, what's his book called? So, so I think it's a fine balance with it all. Yeah, of course. But there's anyway, no, there's no absolutes. I hope you really enjoyed this. I genuinely do. Jeff, you'll find him on Instagram. You'll find one commune on Instagram. You'll find them on their websites. They're really, really brilliant. Of course, they're fabulous. And Jeff yeah, is just I, a I've gentleman. gone through lots and they're brilliant. They're fantastic. He's glorious, as you know, and so is his team. So, uh, yeah, big shout out to them. And thanks to you for making it this far. As Jeff mentioned, like this is one of the greatest things that came out of last year was starting a podcast and we're so grateful you made it this far. So thanks to you. We really uh, appreciate your attention. Massive shout out to the wonderful Shawnee Cahill and Sarah Fawcett who are here with us and who produce uh, this joy, which we adore. Uh, anyway, thanks, Mel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And if you share this on social media and Instagram, we'll just share it as well. So please do um, tag us and we'll just share it on. So bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye